Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. Or if you have it on your phone, make like an Old Testament prophet and scroll to chapter 2. Somebody caught that one. Yeah. I'm here all day. In chapter 2, we pick up the story where Nehemiah has been successful in securing from the king uh, sufficient provision and materials for him to make the journey the right kind of documentation. Now, our first two weeks in the book, we looked at and emphasized the primacy of prayer in the work of God. And both pastors, Taylor and John, foreshadowed for us also the need for preparation. And so this week, we start to look at the other side of that coin. That is, prayer and preparation are not mutually exclusive. That spirituality is not the same as impracticality. And in fact, Nehemiah's practicality and preparation is an indication of faith in a God who answers prayers and brings visions to fruition. And so this morning, I want us to, uh, for our time, our short time together, I want us to talk from this topic, preparation for the vision. Let us pray. Almighty God, I ask that you would meet with us now as we open your word. We ask that as your word goes forth, it would accomplish that which it is sent for. Lord God, that I may decrease and you may increase. Lord, give me conviction of heart, clarity of mind, and concision of speech, Lord. And let your people be changed. That no one that has come here today will leave the same way they have come. And Lord God, be thou glorified. Christ, be exalted. Holy Spirit, be magnified. In Jesus' name, we pray. So we're in verse 19, verse 9, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 20. And as Nehemiah makes his grand entrance into Jerusalem with the king's escort, he makes this strong statement both to his enemies and to his people that he comes in strength and not weakness, but all by the power of God. Now, I want us to walk through the text using eight words upon which to hang our thoughts. Eight words that end with the suffix T-I-O-N. Hopefully, that aids in our recollection as well. Now, the first word is relaxation. Relaxation. Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, but before he gets down to business, he takes a few days to rest after his long journey. In other words, good preparation begins with proper relaxation. You find this point in the 11th verse, a simple sentence which may be tempted to overlook. It says, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night. Why three days? After all, wasn't Nehemiah chomping at the bit to get on with the task at hand? Had he not been anticipating this journey and the opportunity for work? And surely, surely, somebody as possessed of such a vision as Nehemiah would waste no time at all, would just wash up and get right after it. Well, in actual fact, he didn't do that. But instead, he had this relaxation period of three days before arising in the night 
to start the work. And this is something we do well to pause and consider for a moment. You see, we live in a world that acknowledges, or rather that fails to acknowledge the necessity of rest. We follow models who tend you know, uh, to be these dramatic CEOs, these captains of industries, or celebrities and personalities who, if we are to believe the magazines, only sleep like three and a half hours a day. Because they're constantly coming out with innovative, market-disruptive ideas every other hour. And they got their hands in everything. Take Elon Musk, for example. He not only makes cars, he does space travel, satellites, high-speed rails, biomechanical, uh, biomedical engineering, and terraforming. Like he wants to do a whole colony on Mars or something. By the way, that's not going to work. God didn't create us to travel in space. Anyway, my point is they're constantly on the go, right? They get this vision and they get to work. They're dealing and wheeling. They're meeting to meeting. And big business transactions rule. It makes the world economy go round. Well, all of that comes at a cost. And the cost is often the family. The cost is often seen not on the front pages of Fortune 500, but it is felt in many other ways. And the hard-driving leader that we tend to emulate, they need to be poured through the grid of Scripture. And I suggest to you this morning that Nehemiah, in this simple sentence, provides a necessary antidote for many of our frenetic and frantic existence. Nehemiah had made this journey that was probably over 800 miles, this long and tedious and very demanding journey, and he needed rest. Rest is both a blessing and a necessity for all of us. In fact, modern research indicates that a proper balance of work and rest actually increases productivity. But some believers, not you, some believers today confuse activity with spirituality. And Nehemiah tells us that they're not necessarily the same thing. You need rest. That is why Pastor Taylor went on a sabbatical this past summer, recognizing that after a trying year for our society, and especially the church, and for pastors in particular, he needed rest and relaxation. That is why before I started this residency, after sprinting to the finish line of seminary and a summer full of ministry projects, I took a long 10 days off with my beloved for our 10 year anniversary where I beheld the glories of the risen Lord. I rested. I rested and I relaxed. Friends, we need rest. Because no matter how dramatic your conviction regarding the project in front of you, no matter how consumed you are with the vision, no matter how tempted you are to charge ahead at the first available opportunity, we ought to learn from Nehemiah in this simple sentence from verse 11 the importance of rest and relaxation. Now after proper rest, Relaxation, the text shows Nehemiah's examining of the ruins of the wall. And that's our second word, examination. During all these months of praying, Nehemiah presumably had been thinking about how he would tackle this project. He, he had something, something of a mind of an engineer, I think. And so I consulted with my wife, the trained civil engineer, in preparation of the sermon. And she rightly pointed out that 
Nehemiah here conducts what could be called a feasibility study. He wanted to determine whether what he wanted to do could actually be done. And how does he do it? How, how does he go about this examination? Well, let me use three words to explain his process of examination. First of all, he goes about it quietly. That's the explanation for the final sentence of verse 12. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. He knew that this was not a time to take a circus on the feasibility study. It's not a time to take a bunch of people or a bunch of horses along. And commentators said that he was probably riding on a mule since they were less skittish than a horse. It's possible there's only one mount even in order to keep from drawing attention. His examination is conducted quietly. Second, his examination is conducted secretly. Three times you'll find it in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 15 where he mentions the fact that he went on a reconnaissance mission by night. It was clear he wanted to keep things to himself for the time being. He, he probably had good reason for that, as we see later on in the text. And you'll notice in verse 16, he hadn't been telling anybody what's going on. If he had, some people would be immediately discouraged and, and start you know, saying it can't be done. Other people who were on his side would have maybe leaked the information to his enemies and they, they may have tried and shut down the project before he even got started. Quietly, secretly, and third, his examination was conducted thoroughly. This comes through in verses 13 through 15 where we have this description of him going around the perimeter of the wall such as they were. All the silence and secrecy without thoroughness would have yielded nothing. And here we have this detailed description of what's going on and where he was. The, the wall had fallen down the street, the, the steep crevices of the terraced hillsides. He can't ride his mule all the way. He gets off. He walks part of the way. He finally comes back around. And during this whole time, Nehemiah is painting a picture in his mind of what's going to happen. He's thinking of the people he's going to involve. But he wanted to be sure of the concept before he introduced the project. And the thorough inspection of the area allows Nehemiah to prepare for the task that the Lord has laid in his heart. Now after relaxation and examination, Nehemiah gives an honest evaluation of the situation. That's our third word, evaluation. See it here in verses 17 through 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jeremiah lies in ruins with its gates burned. Now pause there for a moment because the fact of the matter is that they didn't. These people have been in the land for years. They, they know in some ways better than Nehemiah does that the walls are in ruins. But nevertheless, it is human nature to get so used to poor conditions that we barely notice them after a while. They've become so accustomed to their condition that it never struck them in the way that it was apparently striking Nehemiah. And, and, and this is a very important principle, y'all. Good leaders will always see what other people miss. In every generation, both biblically and historically, God raises up leaders who are given prophetic insight into what's going on. Now, I'm not talking about some dramatic display of telling the future or anything. I'm simply talking about those who will say, thus saith the Lord. 
to a generation in a way that identifies the trouble we're in. God often uses these messengers and his word to shine light on matters in our lives that are unacceptable to God. Jerusalem is desolate. Perhaps they've grown accustomed to this disgrace. I mean, I mean, think about it. it it's sort of like if your bedroom is, is full of clutter, right? So the first day it gets full of clutter, it's like, oh, oh, my bedroom is, is um, you know, full of clutter. And then the second day, it's full of a bit more clutter. And then eventually, by the end of the week, it's not a bedroom anymore, it's a wasteland. And someone comes in and says, I can't believe the state of this room. And you say, what are you talking about, Willis? My room is fine. <laughs> but the problem is, you've grown accustomed to this place. Some of y'all are laughing because you may or may not live with someone uh, who, I'll stop before I hurt somebody's feelings. <laughs> anyway, that's what's happened to these dear people. They were planting flowers in the broken down walls. They were planting picnics on the site. And Nehemiah comes and says, we've got a problem here. Because the first step in changing a situation is to honestly assess that situation. Only then will we recognize the need for change. Now, while having an honest evaluation of the situation is essential, it is not dispositive. That alone will not get the job done. It's one thing for everyone to know what the situation is, but the real question is, now that you know what the problem is, what you going to do about it? Nehemiah's honest evaluation of the condition of the walls is not enough. In order for the situation to change, it requires work, which brings us to our fourth word, exhortation. Nehemiah directly exhorts the people to do the work. He tells them, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Note here, just quickly, note here how Nehemiah identifies with the people. You see the trouble we are in. And then, come, let us build the wall. See, there are a lot of people who can easily point out the problem, but it takes a special person who not only sees the problem, but also takes on the problem as her own and becomes part of the solution. Oh, I wish somebody would talk back to me. It's one thing to say we need better leaders, to say we need gospel revival, to say we need to end the scourge of abortion, or the pandemic of racism, or the criminalization of poverty. It's another thing to step up as a leader, to run for elected office, to be the change in your family, in your circle of friends, to speak up for the voiceless, to use your privilege on behalf of the marginalized, to open your mouth and share the gospel of the good news of the glorious Jesus Christ with your neighbor, your coworker, your friends, your roommate, your family. It's not enough to point out the problem. You're, you have to be. Indeed, God is calling you to be part of the solution. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. God himself identified with our problem. 
And he who knew no sin became sin for us. Not only did he identify with our problem, he took on the problem himself. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He is the solution to all our problems. And now he calls us, he calls us to go forth into the world, to be his hands and his feet, to bend our backs to the work, to be part of the solution he has provided. Not just calling out the problem, but better yet, pointing out the solution that is in Christ alone. Now all of that exhortation is a chronicle of despair unless you have some critical information to back it up. Our fifth word is information. Verse 17, come on, Nehemiah says, let's rebuild these walls. And sensing the response of some, he then quickly adds this piece of information in verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words of the king had spoken to me. God had moved the heart of the king. That's what we discovered last week in verses 7 through 8. The king had given his blessing for this work. He'd helped in the most practical of ways. And, and as Nehemiah began to share this information with the people, it began to inspire confidence in them. They began to think, well, well, maybe, maybe you're not as cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs as we taught Nehemiah. Hmm, that's interesting. We need to know that. And suddenly, suddenly the word begins to take root in their hearts. And God is sowing and planting a vision within them. Oh, I never thought we could do that before. I never thought about it like that. I never conceived about being able to do that. It never occurred to me that we could reach out with the gospel in that way. And what changed? Exhortation plus information, which leads to our sixth word, application. In verse 18b, after the people received Nehemiah's exhortation and added information, they reply, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. They went straight into action. See, there were plenty of rubble to clean up. So they started. Now, beloved, as we transition ourselves in this church to restarting many of the ministries that were paused over the past year and a half, and, and as, even as we start new ones, it's evident that there's more than enough work to go around. For example, every children's church volunteer could use a substitute and an assistant at their right hand. Every hospitality and welcome team member would love for you to sub in and help set up the welcome tent or greet visitors. We need more mercy team members to visit our sick and shut-in members. What, what blessing would be for Zach and or Skip to enjoy a Sunday where they can simply sit and be blessed to participate in worship, which they are doing, because someone else has been trained to handle the audiovisual. We need more folks helping with Sunday morning logistics, more acolytes to help with the liturgy so the pastors are employing double and triple duty, right? So we need more prayer team members. There is more than enough work to go around. <laughs> and whether you're gifted in administration, hospitality, or skilled in technology, or music, there is more than enough work to be done. In fact, think about the person next to you. There's enough rubble in all of our lives 
for each of us to say, is there anything I can carry for you this week, brother? Is there anything I can enter into your experience regarding this week, sister? Is there something I can do for you practically? There's enough rubble all around us for all of us to be immediately involved. And yes, I get it. They need to be specific delegation, and we'll get to that in chapter 3. But at the grassroots level, where exhortation leads and stands up, and the people follow. Church, let us strengthen our hands for the good work. But I got to warn you, fam. When the people of God rise up to do the work of God, it will infuriate the enemies of God. It will invite our seventh word. Opposition. As soon as the people begin the work, they're on Holy Trinity, show up in verse 19. Sambalet, Tobiah, and Geshem. All these folks, they had a vested interest in making sure the walls were now rebuilt. And we'll learn more about them in subsequent weeks, but here's the principle. Whenever God's work is being done God's way, opposition is inevitable. And you need to face and deal with the criticism and discouragement which attend the work of the gospel. You need to be prepared to suffer abuse and scorn and mockery and ridicule. I mean, that's what Jesus warned us about in Matthew chapter 10. Of the opposition we'll face in this world. They'll come for you and say, oh, never happened. We'll knock down your wall. We'll be here long after you're gone. Friends. The task of the gospel is no place for the faint-hearted. The challenge of living for the gospel as a high school junior or a college freshman or a single professional or a stay-at-home mom or a retired veteran, it's not for the weak or the feeble. It's for the tough. It's for the strong. It's for the brave. It's for the true. It's for the person who can stand astride and plant the banner of the truth and the life of Jesus Christ against the tide of falsehood in a dead and dying world. This is the great need of our day, beloved. We don't need back-clapping, glad-hand, fake, pumping up one another with vague platitudes. We need a realistic understanding of the world in which we live, an honest dependence on the power of God, a complete commitment to the scriptures, and a radical desire to make an impact for God. And there is no time left. There's no time left to casual shoulders. It's all committed infantry. And only the committed may apply. And only the committed may sustain it in battle. For the opposition is intense and increasing. So if you're thinking about getting involved and being committed, understand this. That when God's work is done God's way, you will face opposition. But I got good news, friends. For even when we're faced with resistance in gospel work, even when all hell is let loose to pull down the walls, we persist in the face of opposition because of the firm affirmation we have in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's our first word, our eighth word, final word, affirmation. After Sambalet, Tobiah, and Geshem come and mocked and said, you're rebelling against the king. Nehemiah declares... The God of heaven. 
the God of heaven will make us prosper. In other words, if you think this, this motley crew that's forming around me is the key to the future of Jerusalem, then you must be plumb crazy. And, and, and that's the thing we must always remember, friends. Because when we look around us and we say, what? This group? We're going to take the city of Tallahassee with these people? I mean, look at them. Taylor with his nerdy self. John with his English accent. Fumi with his weird African name. Man, please. And not many of you are mighty. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you are rich and powerful. Just a bunch of regular, ordinary folk. But here's the thing. God does extraordinary things through ordinary people because God is chosen to do that which is small and to work with that which is small to bring down giants. God has chosen that which is weak to confound the strong. God has chosen that which is foolish to shame the wise. Oh, my God is one who works with ordinary people to make extraordinary things. And so Nehemiah says, you don't have any place in Jerusalem. You don't have any share in it. He says that you don't have a right or an historical claim. Get on out of here. Yo. Can you imagine how the small folk must have felt when Nehemiah did that? They must have fell out. Y'all remember the, that dude with the fake um, rap battle? His name was Spit Hot Fire. I'll show it to you after service, Deacon Irma. <laughs> but but the, the conceit was that the dude who was not a rapper would battle rap. And he would always win. And the only reason he won was because he had the hypest crew, right? <laughs> I feel like that was Nehemiah and his people. And he was like, listen up, Mo, Larry, and Curly. Y'all don't have any place in Jerusalem. And the people were like, oh, snap. Y'all don't have any share in it. Like, oh, you don't have any right to it. Oh, no historic claim to it. Oh, and the people were like, yo, Sam Ballot. They were from the south side of Jerusalem. Yo, you, you need a skin graft for that, bro? Because that was a sick burn. <laughs> oh, I was shaking her head. <laughs> Please don't do this. Check it out. The, the folks been around here all this time. They thought they were going to live and die with all this rubble. They thought it was as good as it was going to get. And Geshem and Tobiah and Samuel, these, these folks were the influential. And they came up and they were going to shut it down. But Nehemiah stands up to them. He says, you have no historic claim. You have no right, no place in these things. Nehemiah didn't come to play no games. He came to work. And don't, and don't you find it interesting that Nehemiah doesn't appeal here to the authority he got from Artaxerxes to do the work. I mean, since the opposition accuses him of rebelling against the king, it would have made sense for him to just pull out his papers for Artaxerxes and silence his enemies right then and there with the receipts. But Nehemiah does something else. Instead of appealing to the authority of the king, he appealed to the greatest authority there is. God 
of heaven. Nehemiah's mission is not about political posturing. It is about theological positioning. It's about the reputation of God and his people. Jeremiah is the place where God made his name known to his people and made his presence manifest amongst them. And for the fame of God's name and his glorious reputation, Nehemiah had complete confidence that God will grant his people success. This is the affirmation, beloved, that this work, this work is impossible apart from God. We are inadequate to the task before us. With man, it is impossible. But with God, oh, with God, all things, all things are possible. And we can have poise, we can have persistence in the face of resistance. Because like Nehemiah, we are not intimidated in the least. We are resolved to obey God, to seek his glory, regardless of the cost, regardless of the difficulties, regardless of the opposition. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. For this God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will rise up and build. Praise be to God of heaven. Hallelujah.